It's Independence Day week in Northeast Ohio when we celebrate the founding of this country and our democracy. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, and to signify the spirit of public debate that is part and parcel to our independence, we offer this special episode of This Week in the CLE with two segments. The first is a healthy debate about a unique topic in Northeast Ohio, the proposal to put wind turbines in Lake Erie. Reporters and editors at Cleveland.com go through the pros and cons with some passion. The second is about government itself, this time county government. The Cleveland.com team examines the key points of the continuing criminal investigation into Cuyahoga County government to bring people up to date. This week in the CLE is a podcast discussion and analysis of the news by the people who bring you that news, the team here at Cleveland.com. We produce new episodes on most Thursdays. In addition to this special episode, we will have an abbreviated news episode on Wednesday, July 3rd. The special episode begins now. It's a special episode of This Week in the CLE in which we celebrate the spirit of Independence Day with some spirited debate. First up on the topic list is the proposal to put wind turbines in Lake Erie. I'm Chris Quinn here with Mark Namick. And in this debate, Special Projects Editor Laura Johnston, Editor Chris Warnowski, and Reporter Pete Krause. So let's set the stage for this. This is a long time coming. Pete, you spent a lot of time in the early years of this writing about it. What's the basic gist of the proposal to put wind turbines in Lake Erie? Well, it would be six wind turbines, large wind turbines generating, I believe it's 20 megawatts of power. Uh, They'd be about eight miles off the uh, coast of Cleveland in Lake Erie, and uh, they would uh, generate uh, electricity, uh, a certain amount of electricity. I think it's 20,000 homes, but the primary purpose of this is as a pilot project to see if it works. It would be the first freshwater uh, wind turbine farm in um, uh, certainly in North America, perhaps in the world, there are ones in, in saltwater over in Europe. Um, and uh, uh, there's a big push that to do this uh, also as an economic development uh, 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 project. Laura. So the, the demonstration project is what we are talking about with what's before the Ohio Power Siting Board right now. But I think the main thrust that everybody's worried about is what comes next. And so when you ask the folks at Leadco, the Lake Energy, Lake Erie Energy Development Company, I believe, if there's going to be a next step, and they've given more than 400 presentations over the last six years, um, they've talked about what this could mean for the city and the economy, and there's always this, if it works, if we put more in. And so while the official issue right now is this demonstration project, I think everybody's thinking big picture. Hundreds. More than a thousand. If, if this works and if it's and that, Yes, they will have to go through more approvals and everything, but I think people feel like, well, if you get the six, then what's going to stop them from a thousand more? So, well, it would, a lot could stop them from a right. thousand. But I think that's where why this is such a big deal and why people are talking about it and so worried about it. If this isn't just like the wind turbine at the, the Great Lakes Science Center. like There's just one in the breeze. It's talking about a farm in the future. And part of the reason for the push is there's some money that comes along with this, that the feds would pay for some of this. Well, I think they've already, yeah, they, they have already guaranteed, I think it's $40 million, $40 million. Uh, to be used on this project. And and the thing is, is, is they've done the work. It's all lined up. They have the technology. They have the, the uh, uh, Scandinavian company that would do it. 
and operate it. Uh, they uh, all they need is the approvals. All right. So let's let's now have the debate part of this. <laughs> um, so let's start with the simple. There are people that are worried, boaters and people who live on Lake Erie, that this will somehow damage the beautiful, pristine appearance of the lake. Um, they feel pretty strongly about it. You've talked, Laura, to boaters who are, they're also arguing safety, but talk a little bit about what their position is uh, about the, the hindrance to the aesthetic of the lake. Well, the Lake Erie Marine Trade Association and the Lake Erie Foundation, which is an environmental group, have both come out pretty strongly about it since uh, about January of this year. If you ask them, like, where were you before, they'll think, we didn't know it was really going to come, and it feels like it's coming to a head. Um, and boaters certainly don't want to see them in the lake. Um, I think a lot of the issue has been like, how big are they going to be? So according to Leadco, if you stand on the shore of Cleveland and look out, they're going to be half the size of your thumbnail. But, you know, they're 100, um, I, I think, wait, 479 feet? Yeah, 479 feet tall. And how that looks eight miles out is going to depend on the person and the weather and all of that stuff. So they don't want them out there but i think that they're also worried about other things they're worried about birds they're worried about fish they're worried about yeah, let's get to the environmental later let's keep it on the aesthetic <laughs> for a minute it changes i mean it changes significantly the view that you have of looking out at an open water where it meets the horizon and you're not everybody's going to be on the shoreline others are going to be out on boats that is you can't deny that that it changes it now it's an issue of well to change enough to bother you to, to and there are well, going to be some lights on these they're supposed to be less it's not supposed to be like a cell tower necessarily but there will be some lights but we have not developed our lake we're not chicago where we've taken advantage of our biggest natural asset so what do you say to people that, that argue we're going to wreck the aesthetic of the lake before we even take advantage of it as an asset chris i would say go to santa barbara california i mean if you go to various communities around the world. I mean, you go to Denmark and places where they already have turbines out in the ocean. I mean, it's life goes on and you get used to it. I mean, I lived, look, I come from Illinois where there are wind farms up and down Interstate 55. And as a child, you drove up and down there and it was flat and it was uninteresting. And, and, and now you see these and it's like, what a wondrous thing to have. And, you know, we're already doing offshore things with other types of fuels. I mean, they're drilling oil. We're opening up parts of, you know, Alaska off the Gulf of Mexico where I lived. I mean, it, it's we're already doing stuff offshore that that it pollutes the aesthetic. So I don't I, these things actually look kind of cool. Okay. I, I don't think they're terrible. Laura. I agree with Chris that they don't look terrible. Our cottage on Lake Huron, they don't have any in the water, but they have plenty on the land. And I think they're pretty cool to look at. Um, Block Island is the first American uh, water uh, wind turbine farm. They have five. It's a demonstration project. Um, and apparently they were worried that tourism would drop off, but people are going just to go look at these things. Pete. Well, the thing about Block Island, that's, that's ocean. That's salt water. This would be the first fresh water. Um, as far as the aesthetic, I don't think it would it would ruin the aesthetic at all. Like, like has been said, you could barely see it from the shoreline. I actually think it would look cool. At night, you'd have blinking lights. It would be a tourist attraction. And it's only six turbines. And th compare that to something like uh, the other things that we do to generate electricity, like blowing up a mountaintop to get to the coal. Okay, You put a, a turbine in the water and say it runs afoul, you take it out, right? You haven't damaged anything. I think this this project is tremendous 
from on on uh, from every angle. The one thing I would be concerned about, and we haven't, well, I know we'll go into, is 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 the birds. But even that, I don't think is an issue. Well, but let me push back on something you just said. Just as devil's advocate, I'm not arguing this. You say if they don't work, you could take them out, but. These are huge. Well, and, theoretically, you could take and them out. And the money that it would, would be required to take them out might not be there. There's some bonding to make it sure it's there. But, but mm. say these things go in, the technology changes, they stop being as valuable as they are in the beginning to maintain, they become obsolete, and they, they sit out there and rot. What does that do for the future of the lake? Does it leach out into the lake? Do chemicals get into the lake? I, I don't think that's an issue. Chris? I, every day I drive past, like, two... Uh, rusty drawbridges that have been in the up position <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> forever. So if you want to let a turbine out, rust out in the middle of nowhere, that's fine. I drive by that every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that is an issue when the boaters have brought that up. You know, what happens if it's just this, you know, it looks like an old oil derrick just like sitting in the, the lake. And there is money in the project, but, you know, who knows what happens 20 the 20 in their years in the future because these are only supposed to last 20 to 25 years this is not like a forever project and so the money is is there that's part of the requirements from the state but that doesn't mean people aren't worried about the what if all right i want to we'll get to the environmental in a minute but i want to steer this one to chris because he has strong feelings about it i i asked this a week or so ago with the nuclear plant that is already in existence on the edge of lake erie and all the infrastructure for transmitting the power why not just put them there because then you don't have to run power lines miles out into the lake you don't have to do this expensive construction what's the argument against just putting them on the land where we already have a power plant now i haven't seen one of the presentations from the company but i assume the argument that they're going to make is that putting these inland i think at perry which was the suggestion that was made to you it, it the wind there would not be as strong as science is decided well, where and, these and go. Also, also people the don't people don't live out of, people don't live out in the lake okay so you don't have to worry about the noise and the other things that go along with it but you already have a power plant there pete i mean you can't you can't argue that having wind turbines right, but at perry you, you, is going to ruin but, the aesthetic but you can't just They've put got one turbine towers. up where there's a power plant you're going to have to acquire land you're going to have to have buffers you're going to have to meet these wind setbacks that the that the uh, legislature has uh, imposed that have really put a damper on inland turbine development. There's all kinds of problems with doing it on land. Plus, while it may be the wind may be okay along the shoreline, the wind in northeast Ohio proper, the, the northeast quadrant of the state is not good. You need to go to the northwest quadrant if you really want to have inland uh, wind turbine. But on the water itself, perhaps. But who have they studied that? I mean, no, no, no. I'm saying um, the re the argument for putting it into the lake is you do have the wind. They've studied right. that, right? Oh yeah. But you wouldn't get the forty million dollars from the Department of Energy if you put it. In One under. maybe put a bow on the aesthetic issue. Uh, while I agree they are interesting, I, I guess I'm depressed because. I thought the sunset in the natural resource of the Great Lake itself should be enough to draw people. And, and now we have people in, in these cases well, where people are coming out to see it. Steps. People, I mean, people do love a good sunset. I just think that people want to, you know, it's like anything new. You want to go see what it looks like. Uh, yeah. I mean, what's the difference between seeing a, a, a you know, a sail? On the on the horizon or a turbine on the horizon. De decorate those decorate those those tall. those turbines and you know red white and blue oh, or, or or whatever. All right, all right, all right. I mean, let's, you could, let's hit the big one. If we but, if we let this go, it's a it it would be a typical Cleveland 
and, after. and to, to springboard off of the point he was making about the sort of practicality of, of putting it on land versus putting it, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. It, when you see landlocked farms, they're generally out in the middle of nowhere on farmland where, at, at least in Illinois, you know, farmers get a huge cut of that, that money. And, you know, it's like school districts have invested in wind energy and use parts of their properties to get money from the electric companies that have to reimburse them for that green energy. But if you could imagine how how many delays it would be required to go through all of the eminent domain process and all of the buying of land, I mean, that would push this project way, way out into, uh, you know, not probably not my lifetime. But the, co- but the cost of building this out in the lake is much higher than building it on land. But let's, let's deal with the big question of the environment. It, and it's always been about the birds. We are in a migratory corridor. Uh, the, the huge diversity of bird life that comes through uh, is a uh, talk about a tourism uh, draw. That, that's one of them. Uh, and this isn't reconciled yet, right, Laura? I mean, this is no, one of the of unanswered this, questions. So recently in May, um, Leadco met all of the 34, I believe, stipulations that the Ohio Power Siting Board staff had, had put up. And one of them is continual um, study of bird and bat migration. So they are trying to come up with, like, how to measure this, um, how, fl- how far up they're flying, looking at radar. So just because they've met the stipulations doesn't mean they've crossed it off and been like we've satisfied this we never have to care about birds again it's an ongoing issue that they're looking at yeah and and obviously when we're talking about the environment there's a bigger issue and we'll probably get to that and that is you know beyond the, the the pilot study will the economic forces support such a wind farm given that natural glass as we've seen has really been the the, the killer of coal and the nuclear so you know, we don't know. We know that right now this wind, and Pete, I'm sure you can jump in on this, uh, is expensive right now. Yeah, I believe it is. Far more expensive I, than I, I think of, producing elsewhere. I think about two-thirds of the power that this project would generate has already been spoken for between the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga Right, they've County. committed to paying a yeah. higher premium to take this in. Right. right. For these six. For, for these six. For, for for the, I'm looking for, beyond. For these six. And, and, and it would be great, you know, if somebody else would step in. Uh, you know, I think there was hope that First Energy would play a part in this and, and uh, or other utilities, uh, and, and maybe they will. But, again, this is a demonstration project. It, this it, They're trying to prove something here, they're, and, and if, you know, it's kind of like nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, who knows? The, the, the technology could improve to the point where it, it does become a substantial, a substantially uh, more efficient and cheaper energy uh, producer. I mean, but we don't know unless we do but, it. But let me, let me ask this. We've all seen the photos, the dramatic photos of the lighthouses uh, in the thick of winter encased in, in ice. And we know Lake Erie freezes, and we know what the force of ice can do. Um, and we know that these turbines have to have grease and other chemicals so that they can run efficiently. They're motors, and you, you have they to... They have the technology. They've have developed to, the technology. But, but, but hear me out. What happens if in the freeze-thaw cycle and the brutal conditions of winter on the lake, you, you somehow rupture these, and the, and, and the grease and the chemicals start to get into the lake? Has, has, is there a danger? Because we don't know. You keep saying we have to do the test to find out. But what if the test determines that, yeah, we're, we're leaking? Well, well, they have 
turbines in Scandinavia, up around the uh, Arctic Circle, I believe, that are encased in ice. I mean, they have a special technology. I forget exactly what it's called, a, a mono hull or something of that kind that's designed uh, to break up the ice. That's why this project is called Ice Breaker, and one of the reasons, for two reasons. One, because it's breaking the ice on a new concept, but also because it literally it will be designed to break up the ice that could collects around the base of the turbine. So, so yes, I, 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 for sure that things could go wrong. But things could always go wrong whenever you try something new. And, I, and I'm not an expert on all the grease and oil and stuff that may be inside the turbine, but I can't believe it would be anything close to, say, uh, you know, a rupturing oil tanker. No, of or, course not. Or, or, or coal sludge going into a, a, a mountain <laughs> stream. I mean, you know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's lots of unanswered questions here, but to me the benefits, and, and forgive me for being so enthusiastic, but I think the benefits here really outweigh the, the, the downside. Chris. Yeah, I mean, that's to, to echo that a little bit, I, I don't think there's any energy source that we have outside of solar energy that doesn't have a drawback. I mean, we're our nuclear plants are stockpiled with nuclear waste that the United States can't get rid of. And, you know, if countries aren't taking our plastic, they sure as hell aren't going to be taking our nuclear waste. And, you know, we're blowing up mountains. We're drilling off the shores and ruining the ecosystems underwater of of everything, you know, and it, it just there's there's no great solution. And the technology has gotten better. These things getting better. And, you know, it's a growth sector in manufacturing in the United States. We, we forget to... Not we tend Ohio. To, not, a, not here, but it is like back where I'm from in Iowa, where, you know, Chuck Grassley always manages to carve out, you know, big incentives for the GE wind turbine plant, despite you know, no green energy plans from, you know, that side of the aisle. It's, okay. it's, it's, a, it's a growth industry. Laura, wrap us up. So... One of the things that the opponents are pushing for right now, they say they're not against wind, but what they want is what's called um, an environmental impact statement, which is way more uh, complex and deeper than the 180-page environmental assessment that LEADCO already got. So they got this assessment. It's the Department of Energy, the U.S. Coast Guard, and the U.S. Corps of Army Engineers that signed off on it, saying there's no significant environmental impact from this. And what the opponents of the the icebreaker plan are saying is, we don't think you did enough studying. We don't know enough about this project. We don't care that it's just six. We want to know all the details. We want you to go back and do a deeper dive. It's an appropriate conversation for the Independence Day weekend when a lot of people will be down on the lake watching fireworks over it. They can imagine what it will look, be like to look out and see the little lights way out in Lake Erie. It's this week in the CLE. The movers and shakers of Ohio start their mornings each weekday by getting up to date on state house news and politics through Cleveland.com's capital letter newsletter. If you want to know what they know as they make the decisions that affect your life, subscribe to Capital Letter at cleveland.com backslash newsletters. Best of all, it's free. We're back on This Week in the CLE with a special Independence Day holiday episode. This is a time when we celebrate the beginning of our nation and its government, so it's appropriate, we think, to talk about a more local form of new government, that of Cuyahoga County. For nearly 18 months, we've been reporting on a very large criminal investigation involving the administration of County Executive Armin Budish. It continues to grow, it continues to blossom, and it has been dominating the local news scene. Courtney, could you set the stage for how this all began? Yeah, so let's go way back to the beginning. Internal Auditor Corey Swayzgood and 
Inspector General Mark Griffin, the county's two internal watchdogs, were really raising questions, the internal auditor in particular, about contract handling and risky practices in the IT department centered around the IT's lawyer, Emily McNeely. From there, uh, the investigation started looking into Highland Software, where Emily's wife worked in a contract with the county. It also expanded out to the the head of the IT department, Scott Rourke, and and some contracts with a former business that he, he worked with. Um, so after it started in the IT wing and this contract handling. Well, let me, let me stop you there because that's how we learned of it. The, the first subpoenas that we started to get were, were zeroing in on the IT department. But we now know, based on charges that came about, that there were things happening months before that they also were looking at, like their chief talent officer, Douglas Dykes, had given a $15,000 bonus to an executive that Armin Budish wanted to recruit. When we had them in a few months before the first subpoenas showed up, we had questions about that because the personnel manual for the county, approved by the county council, didn't allow it. They were in our face arguing chapter and verse for why it was legal. Turns out they were completely wrong, and the state auditor letter said they had to get the money back. But that stuff was part of the, the criminal investigation, and those are also the kinds of things Corey Swaysgood also was finding. Yeah, so we saw kind of pieces of this coming out in public, but we didn't understand what the investigators were looking at behind the scenes. Now we know that that there were the findings that that payment to, to Jim Hay wasn't proper. Um, so from there, it, 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 it blossomed out. So, so we're reporting on every round of subpoenas they file for Armand Budish's email and for things involving Emily Sweeney. But in the meantime, last June, people start dying in the Cuyahoga County Jail in numbers never before seen. And by the end of the year, we were up to eight. The grand jury that was examining the things Corey Swaysgood were looking at, they were reading those headlines and it became evident sometime late last summer, I guess, Adam, that that grand jury was now looking at what was going on in the jail. Yeah, um, they started, yeah, we had heard they started asking questions. Uh, we had, like you said, there was, I think, five within a 100-day span uh, in the summer of last year, and it just kept on rolling. And, uh, yeah, so they started looking into the jail, into the health care first you know some of the issues with health care and that's why ken mills was uh the former jail director was part of that first round of indictments uh, well let, let let's explore that the 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 um the medical part a little bit because courtney you did a takeout on a very specific uh county council meeting last may that kind of set the stage for the ken mills charge and and ultimately is another part of this investigation um, talk a little bit about what happened at that meeting and then what Armin Budish did over at Metro Health that brought the focus of the grand jury in their direction. Yeah, so in May of 2018, there was a Metro Health jail medical official. He gets up before county council and he lays out a whole bunch of problems with how the jail's being run. Um, I believe Council President Dan Brady called it a life and death matter. When you're talking about inmate health care, Cuyahoga County residents know because of an incident in 2010 where there were problems there. 
you ought not to mess around when you have an obligation to get folks health care. You've got to make sure it's getting delivered to them. This jail medical official, when he was in front of council, said, hey, 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 we got a problem here. And the problem stems back to, in large part, Ken Mills. Who was? The jail director at the time. At the, ne- the next day, Armin Budish goes to Metro Health CEO, Dr. Akram Boutros, and says, get the medical official out of there. I don't want him in my jail anymore. Boutros complies with that, and this medical official, Gary Brack, is pulled from the jail. Within a handful of days, the first of the eight inmates die. And, and the reason the grand jury started to look at that is under the guise that it was coercion or extortion, that, that Armand used the, or, or may have used the, the idea that he budgets part of Metro Health as his hammer to compel uh, Boutros to remove Brack. The Buddhist administration's contention is their contract with Metro Health allowed them to pick who was in the jail, and they were in their rights to remove him. They felt he had been disrespectful in the meeting, and and that's why they took him out. But it was another area that the grand jury looked at. And then at some point last year, Corey, the indictment, the first indictments came. So we got three people indicted so far, apart from guards who were accused of abusing inmates. Who are the three, and what are the charges? So the three are Emily McNeely, as we've already spoken about. And um, the charges involve? She is char- she's the, has the most charges out of all three, um, and they're basically for having an illegal interest in contracts uh, related to the Highlands c- contract where her wife works and where, um, you know, according to some of the pretrial filings, Emily had been uh, pretty deeply involved in the counties working with Highland on determining whether or not they should get the money for that uh it was was it on base erp the er a part of the erp project um and so i believe she's charged with 17 counts and uh in addition to the the highland she's also um charged with uh misleading counsel about her relationship with cyber so Which is another company that was involved in a big corruption ERP. issue in Pennsylvania that just happened to involve her father. Yeah, and so they're basically saying there's no way you didn't know about this because it's your father. And they have gotten some emails that Emily sent to her wife, Lisa, in which they, you know, she said, I, this is embarrassing for me. I'm trying to, you know, move on from this. I don't want this to stain my career. And so the prosecutors are, are saying that that's, that was her motivation in, in not bringing that up because she thought it would hurt her career. Okay, so that's that's Emily McSweeney. Those charges are pending. McNeely. Uh, McNeely, I'm sorry. Uh, Ken Mills. Going Emily McSweeney. Yeah, right, right. You don't want to do that. Um, Ken Mills is also charged. What's the charge against him? Uh, Ken Mills' charge is, uh, I believe, the actual it's telecommunications, telecommunications fraud. fraud because the, the, the the statement he made to counsel was broadcast over the internet and so therefore it became a telecommunication because it was false because it was false correct about uh his his dealing i th- um the the counsel comment was about who was responsible for making the hiring decision uh to to i guess a not hiring decision to block the hiring of nurses in the jail 
and and he distanced himself from it and they yeah. felt that was false and because it was broadcast that Correct. seems a little bit tenuous a little bit bogus to hit him with telecommunication it's not a crime to lie to county council right i mean it is a crime it's, it's falsification it's a misdemeanor he's charged with that too oh um, so it's it a, is a crime to lie to an official government body in the duty of their you know in the commission of their duties and if they actually act on that too it is. That's, okay. what, that's part of the falsification statute. And then we have Douglas Dykes. What's he charged with? Douglas Dykes is charged, as you said, you know, the fifteen thousand uh, dollar payment. Um, he, the the the, the charge is accusation. Theft. It's theft in office, right? And, and which he didn't actually take the money for himself. He awarded it to somebody else. So he was kind of you know he took the money and gave it to somebody else. So, you know, I imagine that that's going to be their argument, that he didn't actually benefit from this. Uh, Well, that and the fact that we have a recording where his boss, his boss's boss, and a top lawyer of the county argued strenuously that he was in full rights to do what he did. So you're going to have a hard time proving criminal intent. You know, I went back and and read some of the initial uh, from from the indictment stories, and um, I, I think that they, you know, the prosecution says that he didn't tell them that he did that. He, he lied, he misled and, and lied and said he got prior approval to switch that $15,000 from a moving expense to a bonus. And that, I, I, and I'm not sure if when they came in and told us that, that was after the fact and, um, you know, if they were trying to yeah, it's still if you're, track or, if you're a juror listening to the top lawyer in the county saying that the personnel manual doesn't apply, we get to we get well, the to former do top we lawyer in the county, right? Former, but but it's still I, that'll be interesting to see where they get on that. Okay, so then we move forward, right? We 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 continue forward, and um, you know people are continuing to die in the jail, and there comes a day when agents of the attorney general who have taken over the investigation from the county prosecutor because of conflicts, raid Armin Budish's office. So let's talk about what happened that day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they, they filed a search warrant. A judge signed off on the search warrant. Um, at this point, they had already subpoenaed his, Ar- Armin's emails and um, emails, the emails from that... several other people, correct? Right. Yeah. So... That's you know, a pretty, they a show pretty bold move, right? I mean, they don't often show up in force and grab everything in sight. It, and I was down there that day along with these guys, um, and it, and you know, it didn't have quite the the sense of of, of scope as it did almost ten years ago when they raided the county uh, for crimes involving uh, Demora and Russo. But it was about sending the message and being yeah, seen and sending that. That's a real chilling effect. Um, you know, the office was completely surprised by it, especially because, you, as you just noted, they thought, well, we're giving them everything they want. They, they've asked us for this email. They came in. They even took Armin Butish's cell phone uh, because they wanted it. You know, and they, he gave them the code to get, to get access into it. it. It really was a dramatic message, not as dramatic as a scene. I mean, bunch of bored reporters standing around up there waiting, waiting to see yeah, something right. a box or you know I think you all the agents came in and out back doors away yeah. from the media so there was no you know shot with the 
the FBI guys with the you know FBI on the back of their windbreakers carrying out boxes and stuff. No, nobody saw that. But it sent it sent a pretty big statement that the the top executive of Cuyahoga County, the top elected official, is under a serious criminal investigation. They even took his cell phone. Yeah, there's I'm, some symbolism there. Yeah, and, for and, I'm, sure. and I'm twisting up the time a little bit because I think that that actually came after this. But but we also had that moment in uh, November when the U.S. Marshal Service, which Budish had invited in to do an, a full investigation of the jail because of the deaths, issued a devastating report. Uh, it's something that none of us, I think, expected. Adam, what were the highlights of that report or the lowlights? Um, huh, where to start? Um, I, th- I think what stuck out to all of us was withholding food as punishment, no water for inmates, um, excessive use of force, which we now know was pretty rampant um yeah threats against uh threats against the inmates who were talking to the marshals um and just yeah, as the marshals were in there they these i mean these guys did that in front of the marshals that's how brazen it was yeah and just co- complete overcrowding they had no idea how to deal with the overcrowd uh, you know overpopulation in the in the jail and it was inhumane is inhumane, the word that keeps yeah. jumping out that, yeah. uh when you see that in <laughs> in a report about your local county jail that's pretty dramatic well it was striking in that that part of the job of the county executive is to make sure you're caring for people in that are your wards i mean you're responsible for abused children your children and family services department is supposed to make the judgment call of when a kid is in danger and 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 get them out and you know clearly we've had some problems there but in the jail it's your job to protect them they're they're in your hands and what stood out i think to everybody that read that report was almost a a cavalier disregard for the humanity of the the prisoners. They were not seen as the wards of the county. They were seen as as almost a commodity. And actually, both Courtney and Adam, one of the most significant stories that you wrote during this time was the one that showed, with nobody can argue against, their focus when they combined their jail with the city jail and tried to get others was all about how much money they'd get. They never really did the systematic approach to, if we combine all these jails, how do we provide food? How do we provide medical care? How do we provide safe transportation? Um, this was all about the money. Talk a little bit about that. Well, this was part of Budish's push, and this was kind of piggybacking off of what Fitzgerald tried to do in the term administration before him. But he wanted to regionalize the jails, open up county jail service to municipalities so they wouldn't have to operate their own local ones. Well, last year, they brought in Cleveland Police's inmates and Cleveland Police's jail shut down. The jail was already way overcrowded. They were charging $99 a day to house these Cleveland inmates. And then you added 150 more inmates a day to the mix when you already didn't have the supplies and room for everyone who was already there. It resulted in almost daily lockdowns of inmates where they had nothing to read, nothing to do, uh, and just just packed in like sardines with sleeping on mats. I mean, I think, like, they didn't have enough toilet paper to go around for folks. I mean, basic, basic things. Okay, so, so now we're into, into this year. Um, the, the investigators have now subpoenaed four years of um, Armand Budish's email. I don't believe, Corey, they're reading it yet because they're still fighting amongst each other about which of those might be privileged, lawyer-client privileged communication. So 
Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's. I, I haven't seen anything that would indicate that they even have the information yet. They went and uh, tapped the Youngstown prosecutor. Um, to be the arbiter of that? Yeah, so basically he gets everything, and then he's going to look and, and, you know, farm, you know, whittle out everything that would be privileged that Armand had, you know, discussed with his lawyers or, you know, uh, anything that wasn't related to the case. And it's thousands and thousands of emails, so this yeah, takes it's, time. it's years worth, so it's going to take a long time. The point being, there's no end in sight to this investigation, which has pretty much brought the county to a standstill. And as Courtney knows, a whole lot of the cabinet has left, uh, and Budish has not done a very effective job of replacing people. We keep hearing that a chief of staff might be imminent, but we have not seen anything like that. There's holes all over the administration. It seems to me like a pretty bleak environment in, in which to work. People are worn down from it. And that leadership at the top is who, who keeps things going day to day. The interim chief of staff has been there for half a year now. I, I don't see how they'll be able to staff up. Adam, are conditions in the jail better? Uh, no. Uh, all indications are they're still red zones, all red the zones time. all the time. Uh, I think that Booter said in his state of the county address that they were down, but uh, we're hearing the population is starting to creep back up into pretty bad, uh, bad overpopulation again. And one of the one of the worst uh, jail beatings came March 22nd, well after the marshal's report, well after all the scrutiny was on there. So it's mm-hmm. we've had another suicide another in there. Well, to be fair, they they've averaged one or two deaths a year all along, and we're you know the the that death came in five months in, so we weren't at the rate of death. Although remember that that the number of deaths that happened last year all started in June, right? That's yeah. when it began. So. Um, summer brought it on. Um, do we see? Do we see a way forward for the county? I mean, if there's indecision at the top, if there continues to be problems in the jail, how how does the county pull out of this? If I, it looks pretty difficult. I don't know. I, Armand has to finish out his term. If he doesn't have his staff, if he's in the middle of this ongoing investigation, I don't see how much can move during the rest of the, the term. The county had asked for uh, corrections experts to come in and tell them how to fix it. We're still waiting for their report. That was supposed to be done uh, in April. We're still waiting still to waiting. see that. Um, and the other thing, too, uh, Mike Nelson, the Cleveland Municipal Judge, has called for the Department of Justice to come in with a consent decree or something, some other lesser form of that, to compel the county to make changes to this. But the only thing they've done, right, is look at the individual cases now of the beating. So far, there hasn't been a wholesale investigation. They just, they're looking at individual cases. Yeah, that's what it seems. But a subpoena that we got uh, a couple of weeks ago from December was very broad, a lot broader than we thought. I mean, it mentions the deaths up to that point in time, but it also asks for all, you know, all inmates who are beaten, all inmates who did not receive health care, did not have access to health care and asked for it, or so that that was a a little bit of an eye opener to uh at least to me that was yeah it seems like I'm no political reporter or anything but it's it seems like it's going to take some big outside force to come in and write this ship at this point cuz 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Armin has a lot of political capital right now, and I don't think there's a lot of people that are chomping at the bit, right, to jump in and, and work with him at this point because of this cloud that's hanging over him and his administration. So I feel like it's going to have to take someone outside of the county to come in and, and do this. Does this raise questions, uh, the final part of this, does this raise questions about what we did 10 years ago to create a new form of government? And is this a is a failure as a form of government? I'll, I'll jump in on that one. I know we've touched on it before in earlier podcasts, and I, I've argued, uh, columnist had on, that it still is a failure of an individual, not necessarily the structure. Um, I mean, everything points to the leadership. So do you throw out the entire structure because a couple leaders failed? Should, but 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 do you, know, you do a tweak? Like, and we have it. We we've praised the county council recently for some of their you know they're they're stepping up their oversight. That is a, a new structural function that was added with the reform. Are we going to say, well, yeah, county councils get rid of that too? We shouldn't had it. I mean, do we see that as a better option than what we've had before? Is, they've served as a as a bit of a check here, and that's been part of the coverage here. And we look at. You know the the auditors and all this came as a result of of that county of, reform. Of the county auditor. There is an effort to elect the sheriff, saying that if you had somebody accountable to the voter, maybe they'd do a better job in protecting the jail. But if my counter to that is the poster child for elected sheriffs in this area was Gerald McFall, one of the most corrupt people in the history of the county. Look, as the in the, in the county council has right the ability to review the charter, make changes. Maybe we will learn something from all of this that says. We should improve what we what we have here. I can't see us going back, or I can't make the argument that the old system was better. And and people do want to try to argue. We had all these independent offices, and they were able to, you know, watch each other. But we saw that it wasn't that with with the three three member commission, um, which really all acted independently individually. Uh, we saw that Demore was always off on an island by himself. Uh, that having a council and an elected. Uh, executive has at least given us two points to to pivot off of as a as a government to watch all right a lot to think about it's this week in the cle what makes this week in the cle truly unique in cleveland is that everyone who appears is immersed in the news we discuss they're not reading something somebody else wrote to give you perspective they are the people covering the stories that you talk about you can only hear them here hit the subscriber button and make sure you never miss an episode you've been listening to this week in the cle